You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That was Titus chapter 2, verse 15 through chapter 3, verse 7. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for um, your scriptures, for this word um, that we're able to hear and um, learn from this morning. I thank you so much for um, Pastor Andrew and the teaching he's prepared for us. I pray that as we are listening this morning, that we will really um, be hearing from you, Lord, and that you'll just be speaking through um, Pastor Andrew, and that throughout the week we'll continue to um, learn from this passage, from the teaching this morning, from um, talking about it in community groups, Lord, and I pray um, that we will really understand what it means to um, receive your grace, Lord, and be transformed by that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Am I on? Yep. Well, good morning. Um, again, if you are new to Renaissance Online and joining, my name is Andrew Hughes. I'm one of the elders here at Renaissance. Um, so we'll be continuing our sermon series today in Titus. Uh, for those of you in person, I don't know about you, I felt really weird coming in today. In fact, I had a weird like nervousness about it. I don't know why. I just felt like I was going to do something for the first time. Um, so yeah, it's interesting how our habits, uh, we get used to new things. So um, even this morning as we were preparing for the order of things, uh, we're going to do communion today, and I was like, I, do, I don't even remember how to do communion, so we'll see. If I stumble today, it's because I think we're thinking about lots of different things at once, and are we doing things right? So um, it's just great to be back together and do awkward things together, so um, be encouraged by that. Authority isn't very popular, is it? Who likes authority? Particularly to us Americans, we, we value our independence and our freedom. 
Right? The problem is that this sentiment can start to infiltrate the local church, can it? It can inf- infiltrate our Christianity. And we can sometimes start to model as a church national American values more than biblical values of autonomy and independence. I, w- I was at a Pirates game a few years ago now, because uh, who's been to a Pirates game anytime recently? Um, and I overheard a conversation between two guys behind me that went something like this. It's, the one guy said, yeah, Sue is just too nice, like overly nice. You know, she's like Christian nice. <laughs> the other guy goes, yeah, that's too much. I mean, I believe in God a lot, but I'm not for organized religion or anything. Now, that's not an uncommon thing for people to say, right? I'm good with this God thing as long as I don't have to actually be accountable in relationships. I don't need authority. Well, we'll see this morning that our response to authority, even authority outside of the church, is a witness to the world of God's grace in our lives. A witness to the fact that God's grace has freed us from slavery to our own independence and autonomy from bondage to self, and that now as servants of God, we can live peaceably with others, both in the church and outside the church, because we now have peace with God through the work of Jesus. So this morning, we'll see from Titus 2.15, so we're kind of at the end of a chapter going into another chapter, through 3 verse 7, that radical grace produces a radical witness. Radical grace produces a radical witness. A counterintuitive grace produces a counterintuitive witness to the world around us. Paul tells us, uh, Paul tells Titus here to remind the church of some things. Three verse one, he says, remind them. So we'll consider three things. So if you're taking notes, three things that Paul tells Titus to uh, remind the church in Crete of. First, our posture of submission, secondly, our past condition, and thirdly, our present position. So our posture of submission, our past condition, and thirdly, our present position. So our posture of submission. This letter to Titus has talked about really three aspects of ministry, if you zoom out and think about it. There's this upward call of God of the church to worship and glorify God. But in the beginning of Titus, we're called to worship and glorify God. Then there's this inward call of the church to shepherd and disciple and care for the needs of those in the body. We see that all through chapter one and chapter two. But there's also an outward call of the church to be a witness of God's grace and the gospel to those outside of the church. So you might say upward, inward, and outward. And we've seen this outward element before. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Paul tells Titus that our good works should put opponents of the gospel to shame so that they don't have anything evil to say. So if you look here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, you'll notice that Paul is speaking particularly about relationships, specifically uh, how we interact with others. Because there's others involved with all these things. We're to submit to authority and governing rulers. We're to live in obedience, which involves another person. 
We're not to speak evil of others. We're not to be argumentative with others. We're to be gentle with others, showing humility and meekness towards all people. This is otherness. This is relational. So Paul is laying out for us what it looks like to be people of grace. We talked about last week that grace is a person that transforms and changes our life. So now he's saying this is what it looks like. If you think about it, his words to Titus are just sort of going back and forth. Gospel, grace, and outflow works. Back to the grace, outflow of works. Back to grace. It's just sort of he's cycling over and over. So we're seeing this cycle again. You might even end today going, this sounds like the exact same sermon from last week. Or it sounds like the exact same sermon from the week before. Or you know what? It sounds like every sermon here, we talk about the gospel of grace and how it produces a change in our life. You might be catching on to a theme. There's one message the church is called to, and it's the same message every week. We don't have anything new to say any week. We're going to say the same thing every week because that's what we need. So Paul is laying out for us what it looks like to be people of grace. Last week I stated that since grace is a person, that means that then... To receive grace, you must receive a person. To believe in grace, you must trust in a person. And thirdly, to be gracious, you must act like a person. So Paul is saying, this is what it looks like to be gracious, to be people of grace. But not only does Paul highlight relationships here, he specifically highlights authority, interestingly, in 2 verse 15 and then going into chapter 3. I think it's important that we understand that human authority is always a derived authority from God. Because he, he speaks first to Titus and says, Titus, rebuke with all authority. He says, declare these things. What is he saying? Tell of his grace. Exhort and rebuke. Don't shrink back from saying these things over and over. Do it with authority. Keep declaring the gospel. Keep telling of his grace. Don't change. Don't stop, Titus. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and maybe speak specifically first to the elders and pastors in our church, but then anyone who's in a leader position. But I, want, uh, I don't know if it's often that we speak directly to our elders and pastors, and I think this passage does for a moment. Tim Chester, in his book, Total Church, says this, a leader or a pastor's authority is a mediated authority. They have no authority in and of themselves Instead, they exercise Christ's authority on behalf of Christ as they teach and apply the word. Any authority that Paul says Titus would have is a mediated authority. It's not through position or personality. It's through God's word. We, our words as leaders carry authority only in as much as they are God's words. When it goes outside of that, it's not authoritative. It's only authoritative in as much as we are mouthpieces of what God is saying. So this isn't the only place, though, Christians are told to submit to authorities. It's interesting, Paul tells Titus to rebuke with authority, but he does seem to actually shift here and speak outward to governing rulers and authorities in obedience to civil magistrates. So it seems to be this outward now call that submit to authority, submit to the gospel, but be people that have a posture of submission to those around us in the world. Matthew 22, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. 
Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to be the emperor, uh, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Christians of all people should be people who have learned that they aren't the center of the universe. That they must live lives submitting to others, even those who aren't great leaders at times, even those with whom they disagree. Now, obviously, we, we're not required to submit to authority that tells us to do something unbiblical or that conflicts with the biblical command. So we have a paradigm for that in Acts 5, where Peter says we must obey God rather than men. But that's not usually our problem. It's not usually our problem today. I want to pause here and, and from an application standpoint, read from an excerpt by Brian Chappell. Um, And just to clarify, uh, this was written 21 years ago. So in case you think that this is just an op-ed off the Gospel Coalition, it's not. This is written 21 years ago in a commentary. And I thought it was so applicable to our lives that it's better for me just to read these things than to try to reword them. Because I don't have anything original to say. This is what, and this is a little bit, I'm going to try to pause in places just to let these truths or these thoughts apply. How do we apply this passage? Sink in. But there's a little bit, there's a little bit of length here. He says this though. Brian Chapel says, the apparent priority of this obligation to submit to governing rulers and authorities in this context may initially strike us as curious. So maybe you read through this this morning. You thought, well, this seems like an odd thing to be saying here. So he, he notes that. That is maybe a fair first thought. Why in summarizing a minister's duties does Paul list civil submission as the first duty that a Christian minister should emphasize? Why? He says this, In an age of culture wars, we can grasp how much of life is affected by the charge to give proper respect to national leaders, how we vote, the ethics we use in political debate and action, the laws we obey, the legislation we seek, and the language we use to discuss governmental issues and officials at church, at work, and around the dinner table, all of these areas of life are affected by Paul's instruction to be subject to rulers and authorities. Lest we think that Paul and the other apostles simply did not know what we have to put up with, we should remember that these were the times of Caesar's occupational armies and Colosseums. National authorities are not the only thing we must consider, however, when applying these instructions. Rulers and authorities will concern our people when they try to build or repair buildings according to city codes, conduct business according to laws of commerce, drive according to traffic laws, run schools according to state standards, pay workers according to government regulations, or pay taxes according to the laws of city, state, and nation. For people to subject themselves to civil authority according to Scripture will require an examination of virtually every area of our daily life. We will not escape this because we happen to be in church ministry either. I have yet to work in a religious setting where we did not have to face unreasonable standards or officials that inhibited the progress of our ministry. And every time there's a temptation to think that because the authorities are not reasonable, our obligation to submit to them is annulled. The Bible will not allow the inconvenience of proper authority to lessen our obligation to submit 
to rulers. I think that's a really powerful statement. The Bible will not allow the inconvenience of proper authority to lessen our obligation to submit the rulers. And he says for two reasons that are gospel-focused. Paul did not, tithe, did not want Titus. Paul wanted Titus to teach the church to be submissive to the rulers and authorities because he did not want the gospel to be identified with political agitation that would bring Christianity under suspicion as being merely a counter-political movement. Because Christianity, the gospel, is not a counter-political movement. It is a counter-cultural message of the spiritual need that we have. It is not a counter-political movement. And, and what Brian Chappell's point is, is if we begin to misinterpret or confuse inconvenience and unreasonableness with suffering, we can undermine the gospel message. I think it's really important. Don't misinterpret inconvenience, unreasonableness, annoying things of ruling governors and authorities with suffering, or else we can start to infiltrate the gospel with a counter-political movement instead of a counter-cultural, radical, transforming change in our lives. He then says, if Christians routinely operate in the mode of respecting only the authority which with they agree or that does not trouble them, then the minister of the gospel, the pastor who must correct, rebuke, and exhort, will soon have no authority. What is his point? We must be people that our posture is one of submission. This is what grace does to us. It doesn't puff us up. These are my rights. It brings us down and says, I will submit. Paul says, remember who you are. You're freed in Christ by grace to become now servants to others. And unlike the false teachers back in 1 verse 16 who were unfit for any good work, we're called to be people now zealous for good works, or here in Titus 3, to be people ready for every good work. Not unfit and unable, but ready for every good work. But maybe you're asking, Andrew, what motivates us, though, to live such countercultural, radical lives? Well, Paul tells Titus here, he, he, he turns, he kind of pivots on this word in verse 3, 4. Paul reminds Titus and the church of who they once were. We saw here in the first two verses who they should be in the now. This is what it should look like to live lives of radical grace. But he says, for this, you were once slaves to yourself instead of freed servants to others. You were slaves to your own passions and pleasures, not zealous and eager for good works. You hated others instead of loving others. In fact, you, you even were hated by others. This is how messed up you were. You didn't just hate them. They hated you. That's how annoying you are, naturally. <laughs> this is relational chaos, right? It's one thing to think, like, oh, I hate those people. It's another thing when they hate you back, right? This is just relational chaos. He said, this is what your life was like. It's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. This is your past condition. Paul is saying, hey, don't forget that you too were once like those you're having trouble submitting to. You're just a sinner like them as well. Good works then flow out of a knowledge of our inherent sinfulness, that we're no different from the world around us. Any other person, we're no different. We're made of the same material. And remembering this will lead us to be patient and gentle, at least it should, because we're on a level playing field. 
We aren't any better. A theology of grace that doesn't lead to compassion is no theology of grace at all. A theology of grace that doesn't lead to compassion, and don't confuse that with leniency. We talked about that last week. It's not leniency, but if it doesn't lead to compassion, it's no theology of grace at all. Christianity's message isn't, I'm better than you, but rather, I'm the same as you. So do you see your sin first, or do you see the sins of others first? I know I tend to see my, uh, uh, not my, other people's sin first. I see other people's sin first. This is what Jesus meant. Get the, get the log out of your own eye. Do I see my sin first or others? Paul says, remind the church of these things, because we're prone to forget them. That's why he says, remind them. Keep saying it over and over. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't let them disregard you. Don't shrink back from this. Remembering this will lead us to lives of humility. But not only should we be motivated to do good works by remembering that we're made of of the same material as others, we are ultimately motivated by the fact that what changed us was not ourselves, but God. God's grace to us when we didn't deserve it. A grace that becomes the basis for us to even have the ability to do anything good at all. So again, in verse 3, there's an important word to pivot on, for. So in verse 4, we see another word, but. Paul transitions here with this word, but. And he reminds Titus and the church in Crete why God saved them and what it was that actually made the difference in their life. He he appeals now to their present position. He's seen their past condition. He appeals now to their present position. So why do we have a new position? If you go, okay, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Why did he do this? Well, Paul first goes to the negative. He says, this is why it didn't happen happened. This is why he did not save you. He says, God's goodness and kindness and salvation didn't appear in Christ because of our good works or, or, or works done in righteousness, he says. Christ didn't appear, right? Christ is grace. Salvation didn't appear in Christ because of our good works. God doesn't give us good because we give him good. It's not an equal exchange. We talked about the exchange that grace is. He gets our sin, we get righteousness. It's not an equal exchange, like I give you a $5 bill and you give me something worth $5, right? Just, we just, it's like when you buy gifts for your family, you know, you're like, why are we doing this? I, I spent 30 bucks on you, you spent 30 bucks on me, why don't we just keep our 30 bucks? It didn't do anything for anyone. It was, I mean, that's how I feel half the time, right? It's just... It doesn't mean anything. No one's really being gracious to each other. It's just exchanging gifts. That's not what this is. This is I give God some good and he gives me some good back. You give him nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. God doesn't help those who help themselves. I know that sounds dumb, but I hear that. I, I, I hear that regularly. God helps those who help themselves. God doesn't help those who first pull themselves up by their bootstraps. John O. and his, and I say O because I don't know how to say his last name, 
But in his prayer book that some of the leaders here read just recently, he says forgiveness comes through pardon, not performance. God saved us not because of us, not because of works. We're saved not through works done by us, but by a work done for us that produces a work in us and through us. That's the summary of verses 4 through 8. We are saved not, not, so negative, through works done by us, but by a work done for us, Jesus dying, justification, that produces a work in us by the Spirit and through us. That's regeneration. Now, I want to clarify here, though, and I've thought this way before myself. We can sometimes know that our works don't earn God's favor, but we can think of it as something that we're still sort of paying God back for, even if it's in little increments. Like, I can't really pay him fully back. I'll pay him back a little bit. I couldn't earn it, but I can pay him back a little bit. It sounds like this. After all that God's done for me, this is the least I can do. It sounds right. sounds right. But it's not the gospel. After all God's done for me, it's the least I can do. Why is that not the gospel? Let, Let me give you an illustration, a really probably dumb illustration, but this is the way I can think about this. Um, Let's say I have a huge debt. Um, I lose my job, foreclose on my house. Uh, I'm racking up credit card debt. I have all these bills missing, and let's say just whatever. I get sued by a bunch of people, and the IRS wants money, and I owe a million bucks. Okay, I owe a million bucks, and Pastor Rob comes over and says, hey, Andrew, I'm going to pay this debt for you. I, I would be overwhelmed. I'd be like, I, I can't pay that. I don't have any of the resources to pay this. In fact, I don't think I could ever pay you that back. So, but and I go, hey, Rob, like, man, super appreciate you paying my million-dollar debt. I could never pay for this. Hey, least I can do is, like, let's go out for coffee. Let's go out for coffee. Let's just super thankful. Let me take you out. Let me take you out for coffee. So come out. You, we go to the coffee shop. I walk up to the register. I'm feeling pretty good. Like, I can't pay him a million bucks, but I could spend $3.47 to buy him a cup of coffee. And as I pull the card out of my wallet to go put it in the machine, I look down, and the card says, Rob Maine. And I realize I don't have anything. Rob's buying the coffee I'm thanking him for. That's what, it, that's what our good works do. As John Piper says, good works do not pay back grace. They borrow more grace. When I went to pay Rob back with a little cup of coffee, I just borrowed more from him to thank him. Isn't that amazing to think about? It's not, after all God's done for me, the least I can do is give him a little bit of something. After all God's done for me, I'm just going to keep receiving more grace to funnel back to him, and it, I can't. You're just a funnel of God's grace. That doesn't make you useless. It's just amazing God would use us in that way and allow us to participate in his grace. Gene V paraphrases Martin Luther this way. He says, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And that's what Titus is talking about here. God doesn't need our good works. He doesn't go, man, I really need you to do this for me. Do you see what Our good works are benefiting others, all the relationships around us, because they're pointing back to God so that that no one can say anything evil because of the lives we're living. 
So God's treatment of us is a contrast to what we should expect. That's what makes it radical, because it's a contrast to what we deserve. He acts in a counterintuitive way. We didn't expect that. It's not the way we naturally think. But not only is there this negative statement of what, how grace doesn't come through us, not through works, there's a positive statement here. Through his goodness and loving kindness. The benevolence and philanthropy of God. God is the greatest philanthropist who's ever existed. Greater than Andrew Carnegie, or Carnegie, however you say it. I get it messed up. Or the Mellon family, or anyone else in Pittsburgh. Greater than that, by infinite proportions. Notice in verse 6 that the Spirit is poured out on us how? Richly. That is, in abundance. Grace upon grace. Grace is like a rolling tide in the ocean. If you've been in the ocean and you've ever gotten knocked down, you know that feeling? You try to get up and a big wave knocks you right back down. This is grace. It keeps coming and beating you down in a good way and just washing over you. And, you, and you're like, this is ridiculous. I can't take any more grace. The only, my illustration of that that I can think of recently is Kelly and I went to a Brazilian steakhouse recently to celebrate going on a date once every six months because of COVID. And um, I've never been there. Kelly said, this is going to be a lot of fun. You'll like this. And um, if you've never been to one, what happens is they just keep bringing you meat. And if you don't like meat, I'm sorry, I'm not pretending to be offensive here, but that's what they bring you is meat upon meat. And as you're eating meat, they bring you more meat. And you're like, I'm done with the meat. And they keep bringing you more meat. And you're like, okay, I'll eat more meat. And it's just infinite meat, it feels like. And by the time you're done, I can't. This is so good. I can't handle it. Please stop. Stop. I cannot handle all the goodness. This is God's grace. It's, we, we don't, we're normally like, God, give me more. I need more of that. I deserve more grace. I haven't gotten enough grace. I, gave, I bought him a little cup of coffee. He should give me something. Great. It's more like being at the steakhouse. I can't handle God is so gracious. It's blowing my mind. I'm overwhelmed. Stop it. Have you been embarrassed before because someone does something so generous and it just sort of embarrasses you? Does grace embarrass you because you know I don't deserve it? Why do you keep doing this? That's grace. If grace never embarrasses you, maybe, maybe we just haven't let grace soak in. God's grace is embarrassingly radical. He did not, Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul says? If he didn't spare his son, what are you worried about? He's going to graciously give us all things. God saves out of mercy, he says. There's so many amazing words in this passage. God's goodness, God's loving kindness, uh, God's mercy, uh, God's regenerating work, God's justifying work. We become heirs. It's sort of like a densely, uh, we could just do sermons on one of those things, but his mercy, he saves out of mercy. He doesn't save out of merit. Kids, someone being merciful is when someone withholds something that you should have gotten, right? I should have gotten disciplined for this thing, and I, someone was merciful, and I didn't get that. God withholds that because he's merciful, and he put it on his son. He saves us out of mercy, not merit. God's goodness and kindness appeared to us in the person of Jesus out of mercy alone. So 
That's why he did. But how do we get this thing? Maybe you're listening in today. You say, how do I get to participate in this? I understand that it's not through works. I understand that it's out of God's great loving kindness and goodness and mercy. But how do I actually get it? How, how does he show us this love and mercy specifically? Well, Paul explains a little bit more about our salvation here. In fact, it's interesting that we see what we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all actively involved here. God the Father is sending the Son to die and give us a status of righteous, justified heirs, and God the Spirit is applying the power of Christ's work in our hearts and lives. All of the Trinity actively involved. Spirit regenerating, it's this, this, this idea of rebirth, or is, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. You need to have a new birth. You need to be, go from death to life, being made alive spiritually by the presence and the work of the Spirit, taking us from spiritual death to life, opening our blind eyes. Do you see the Spirit is the one acting here, not us? The Spirit changes our desires and motivations and attitudes. The very things that he says we used to be enslaved to. We were enslaved to passions and pleasures. How did that change? Not us. The Spirit changed those very things so that we, were, we would become zealous for the right thing and not eager for the wrong things. The presence of the Spirit, Christian, is your relational union to Jesus himself. The presence of the Spirit in your life is your relational union to Jesus. We say we're united to Christ. How? By His Spirit. The Spirit's presence identifies us with Jesus. The Father looks down and sees the Spirit, and He goes, that, that person belongs to me because they're stamped with Jesus by the Spirit. And those identified with Jesus, He said, are justified heirs. We get the stamp of the Spirit, and now you go, well, you're in the family. You're justified as an heir. This is our position. This is our present position, our status, our identity, justified heirs. Our culture often asks, what do you identify as? Right? What do you identify as? It, and that's normally answered by something about the way I feel inwardly, the way I view myself. It, I look inward. What's unique to me? But our, the scriptures say our identity is outside of ourselves. We're identified with Jesus. You're in the family, an heir, a family you shouldn't have been in. This is what justification is. Our, I, we don't read often from our doctrinal statement, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves that we do have beliefs about Scripture. So let me read these because this is just helpful. The only ground of justification is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the only way to receive salvation is through faith in him and repentance from sin. Justification delivers sinful people from the wrath of God due to sin and grants them the perfect righteousness of Christ. The Spirit's work of regeneration removes the old nature and creates a new nature that loves to please God. Just, I just want to remind us that what we believe as a church and our statement of faith just comes from Scripture. Right? We don't make those things up. Justification is being declared righteous on the basis of another person's goodness outside of me. Justification is based on God's grace, God's unmerited kindness, the person of grace himself. 
Our justification is on the basis of something outside of me. It's God's grace, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's perfection, Jesus' righteousness. So God's love appeared to us in this way then. Through the appearing of Jesus in his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf that provides our right standing with God. That's our justification. But also through the appearing of the Spirit, giving us new spiritual life, that we might be made alive. So the Father changes our position through Jesus, and he changes our passions through the Spirit. Changes our position through the work of Jesus and our passions through the work of the Spirit, so that we might be what? At the end of this, heirs of what? Eternal life. We get an inheritance. We're in the family Let me just pause here for a moment and talk about how do we live out of this position, though? Okay, this is our position, not just something to say, but how do we live out of it? And this is going to be a, a little bit of a, what I'll call a verse 8 teaser, because that's not supposed to be in the passage this week. It's going to be in next week's sermon, but a verse 8 teaser. Because God's treatment of us is in contrast to what we deserve, our lives should now be radical, counterintuitive contrasts to our previous life before, God changed, before God's grace changed everything. We've been delivered from self to serve God and others. And since our good works can't merit God's grace, our good works should instead flow out of God's grace in our lives. Uh, Mike McGreevy, who's on the sermon prep team, I thought he had a really just great succinct thought this week. He said this, what we do, what we do is rooted in what we did not do. What we do, so our good works, is rooted in what we did not do what Jesus did. Isn't that, isn't that a really helpful, like, ooh, that's thought-provoking. What I do is rooted in something I didn't even do. Or we might say it this way, do because of what's already done. Or as we said last week, live out of my identity received, not achieved. Tim Keller says it this way, since we're going to say it four ways and see which one sinks in with you. He says, the gospel is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I, I obey. However, whatever, whichever one sticks with you, the order is important. It's, impor- it's so important that Paul tells Titus here to declare these things, remind these things, and then verse 8, insist on teaching these things. So again, I'm going to look at the elders here in the room, and they're all here. I don't know where Luke is. Insist on teaching these things. We must insist on teaching these things, in teaching radical grace, unmerited grace that produces unmatched works. The, the world, our culture, people will insist that we teach all types of things. They will insist that I must hear this, I must hear that. But Paul says this is what you must insist on not stopping teaching. Grace that produces change. This is the gospel message. And the order is important. Insist on good works that outflow from grace. The gospel is not a counter-political movement. It's a counter-cultural message. A heart-changing message. So, Christians, consider your own life. Has grace radically changed the way, changed your life in a, in a counterintuitive way? Are, are you stingy with forgiveness? 
and showing grace to others? Do you point out evidence of grace in others' lives or just critique them? Is your life marked by a posture of submission or antagonism? Is your life marked by humility? Now, don't get me wrong and miss the point of this morning. Good works flow out of grace. So maybe you've been working and working the day to merit God's favor. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church service. Maybe someone invited you, or maybe this is the first time the gospel ever made sense. Have you been working to merit God's favor this morning? And and maybe you need to bow your knee in submission to Jesus and away from your own perceived goodness. Danny Aiken says this, on your best day, you had nothing to give God. That's where conversion begins, realizing that, that on my best day, I had nothing to give God. Maybe you just need to be reminded of God's radical grace, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Your sin cannot compete with God's grace. Do you believe that? Maybe you think, you don't know what I've done. Don't know what I've done, Andrew. I don't. But I know we're all made of the same material, so we've probably done similarly. Your sin cannot compete with God's grace. Dive into the ocean of grace. You don't need to change to get God's grace. You don't need to change to get God's grace. Maybe you're like, whoa, I think that was heretical what Andrew just said. It's not. It's what Paul says. You don't need to change to get God's grace. You need God's grace to change. The order is important. Last night, as I was finishing up the sermon, I thought, man, I wish we were singing Rock of Ages because there's some really good lyrics in that. And then I looked at the email from Hannah. I thought, wow, we're singing Rock of Ages. Amazing. Let me just read some words we're about to sing in 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 a few minutes. Not the labor of my hands, not the labor of my hands, can fulfill the law's demands. So the labor of our hands cannot fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. So we talked about zealousness. Could my zealousness never stop, not rest? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This morning, we actually get to continue.